This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I couldn't be happier to be paying tribute to Thomas Aquinas, who was one of the most important people in my own spiritual life and development. Uh, maybe some of you heard me tell this story before, but uh, when I was a kid of 14 years at Fenwick High School outside Chicago, I heard one of my young professors in religion class go through one of Thomas's arguments for God's existence, and it changed my life. That's simply true. Uh, I'm sure it affected no other kid in the room, but for some reason, it just grabbed my attention. I was a, a Catholic kid going to Mass on Sunday. I, I believed in God, but I, I just never thought that one could think about God in a serious way. And it so grabbed my attention that I went to um, Thomas Ford Memorial Library, which is the local library in Western Springs, Illinois. And I found um, Mortimer Adler's, you know, the great book series. There were, he had two volumes on Thomas Aquinas, so I, I took one of them off the shelf, and I remember tucking it under the T-shirt I had on, and I rode my 10-speed bike home with this uh, Adler book. And I started reading Aquinas. I had no idea what I was reading. But it was sort of a fascinating moment in my life, and it started me no kidding, on the path that's led me to where I'm standing right now. Uh, Thomas uh, led me first by my mind, then by my heart, to God and to a life dedicated to God. When I became a bishop, I took uh, one of his famous lines as my motto, uh, non nisi te domine, when the, the Lord spoke to Thomas from the crucifix and said, Thomas, you've written well of me. What would you have as a reward? And he famously said that. I'll have nothing except you, Lord. So, I mean, Thomas has followed me all my life and has influenced my intellectual work, influenced my spiritual life, and so it's a delight to um, pay tribute to him tonight. What I'm going to do, everybody, is share with you, it's kind of a brief paper, it's probably take me only about a half hour or so to read, and I'll give it the, the full provocative title, which is Thomas Aquinas and Why the New Atheists Are Right. Uh, my argument is that uh, the new atheists especially, it's true of, of all the atheists, but especially the new ones, um, that they're really good at articulating what God is not. And the God that they deny would clearly be a God that Thomas Aquinas would deny. And so coming to that clarification is very important for our own understanding of God. The great English Dominican theologian Herbert McCabe, engaged a number of atheists in the course of his career as a public intellectual. Typically, he would allow his interlocutor to make his opening statement, detailing why he didn't believe in God. And McCabe would respond, I completely agree with you. The Anglican New Testament scholar N.T. Wright tells of an encounter he had with a young undergraduate when Wright was chaplain at Oxford. The freshman said, Father, don't expect to see a lot of me. I just don't believe in God. Wright asked him what he meant by God, and upon hearing the young man's account, he responded, Son, I can assure you, I don't believe in that God either. Like McCabe and Wright, I have always found atheists of all stripes helpful, both spiritually and theologically, precisely in the measure that they clarify what the true God is not. They expose and implicitly undermine new forms of idolatry. One of the very clearest in this regard is the father of modern atheism, Ludwig Feuerbach, who famously held that God is a projection of our idealized 
self-understanding, which is to say a simulacrum of God made in the image of human beings, precisely what the Bible would have called an idol. Now, the only thing particularly new about the new atheism, it really isn't so much new anymore, it's about 20 years old, but the only thing particularly new about it is its nastiness. Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, who, by the way, Paul Griffiths, the theologian, deliciously combined as Ditchkins, <laughs> Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, and their numerous disciples, and trust me, I've met every one of them on, online. They, they gave rise to a whole generation of, of uh, followers. What these people have done, they borrowed many of the intellectual insights of Feuerbach, Marx, Freud, Sartre, Nietzsche, and many others. What they've added, though, is a kind of dismissive contempt for religion and religious people. Whereas Nietzsche and Sartre gave the impression they were in battle with a pretty serious opponent, Ditchkins and company imply they're exposing the delusions of an idiot child. Nevertheless, they serve for our generation their essentially prophetic function of displaying idolatry. And this is continually needed for, as St. John of the Cross famously put it, the mind is an idol-making machine. That's why we need the atheists, every generation, to remind us, oh yeah, that's what God is not. Now, there's so much we could say about the ruminations of the new atheists, so many ways we could engage them. Their obsession with biblical literalism, their deep concern about religion in relation to violence, their conviction that religion is irreconcilable with modern science, their assertion that faith poisons the minds of the young, etc. But I want to draw attention in this lecture to one theme that I take to be basic, one misunderstanding that conditions everything else they discuss, namely, the view that God is a being among many, one cause amidst the range of contingent causes, a reality in the world whose existence or non-existence could be determined through rational, which means for them, scientific investigation. Now, Christopher Hitchens delighted in recounting the famous tale of the encounter between the Emperor Napoleon and the French scientist Pierre Simon de Laplace, the author of Celestial Mechanics. Having heard Laplace's exposition on the movement of the planets within the solar system, Napoleon reportedly asked why the figure of God did not appear in Laplace's schema, to which the scientist laconically replied, je n'ai pas besoin de cette hypothèse, I have no need of this hypothesis. The assumption of both Napoleon and Laplace was apparently that God is rightly understood as one of the mechanical causes that contributes to the motion of the planets, perhaps the largest and most important cause, but still one among many. Though Napoleon seemed to favor the existence of such a cause and Laplace to deny it, both thought of God as fundamentally like otherworldly agents. Now we find something very similar in Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion, dismissing Stephen Jay Gould's position that religion and science deal with qualitatively different dimensions of reality. Dawkins opines that science can and must adjudicate the question of God's existence turning certain cosmological questions that seem to pass beyond the province of the sciences over to the chaplain makes as much sense, he says, as turning them over to the chef or the gardener. Now, here's how Dawkins characterizes the religious position, and please listen attentively, because this gives away the game. I'm quoting now. The God hypothesis suggests that the reality we inhabit also contains a supernatural agent 
who designed the universe and even intervenes in it with miracles, close quote. And this is precisely why Dawkins can compare belief in God to belief in, famously, the flying spaghetti monster, to say a fantastical imaginary being for whom there's not a trace of physical evidence. And here he simply mimics his own master, Bertrand Russell, maybe with Sartre, the most famous atheist of the last century, who speculated that it is as impossible to prove the non-existence of God as to demonstrate the non-existence of a, quote, China teapot orbiting the sun between Earth and Mars, close quote. Now, what's so telling about both analogies, again, is that God is being compared to some agent or entity within the universe and operating alongside of other agents and entities. Dawkins concludes on the basis of this understanding of the divine that God's non-existence can be demonstrated to a very high degree of probability. If Occam's great principle holds, then God is not required, since we can indeed explain most, if not all, worldly phenomena by appealing to worldly causes. Je n'ai pas besoin de cette hypothèse. Now, this way of approaching God is on particularly clear display in the manner in which the new atheists assess the traditional arguments for God's existence. Both Hitchens and Dawkins dismissed Thomas Aquinas' arguments in favor of a prime mover or uncaused cause with the cavalier question, well then what caused God? The observation proves, of course, that neither thinker, thinker has grasped the nettle of the argument, but for our present purposes, it shows that both persist in thinking of God as one more cause in a chain of contingent causes. We see it as well in their preoccupation with the so-called God of the gaps. All the new atheists revel in what they take to be religion's instinctive but pathetic retreat into the gaps in present-day scientific accounts of reality. With some justification, they characterize intelligent design theory as just this sort of illegitimate move. Because we can't discern a clear and uninterrupted path by which certain living forms evolve from lower forms, we assert God did it. But what will happen to God so construed as the fossil gap closes, or as our imaginations enable us to picture the evolutionary process more exactly? Dawkins laments the fact that while scientists try to clear up mystification, theologians exult in it playing temporarily in the darkness that science will eventually illumine. Once more, God is being thought of as a competing cause, ontologically at the same level as conventional, empirically verifiable causes. Now, the new atheists are far from reluctant to extrapolate from this metaphysical conception of God to what they take to be deeply disturbing implications for human flourishing representing as they do a supreme being, competitive with other causes and brooding over the human project, the religions foster, I'm quoting now from Hitchens, a police state in which all aspects of the private and public life must be submitted to permanent higher supervision. On this view, God watches and governs the world from the outside and imposes his rules on a recalcitrant human freedom. Hitchens and Dawkins seem to accept Sartre's famous syllogism to the effect that if God exists, I cannot be free, but I am free. Therefore, God does not exist. This explains, finally, Hitchens believes why religion and political totalitarianism 
are usually closely allied. Okay. I maintain that the exertions of the new atheists in regard to God are, for the most part, an exercise in knocking down a not very impressive straw god. A god who dwells in or alongside of the cosmos, whose existence or non-existence could be determined through scientific investigation, who might himself be susceptible of causal influence, who bears even the slightest resemblance to a flying spaghetti monster, and who presides over the human project in the manner of Kim Jong-un presiding over North Korea, is an idol of the very worst type. So again, thank you to the New Atheist for articulating clearly what God is not. And see, everybody, it's Thomas Aquinas who can help us to see this. One of the most remarkable features of Thomas's doctrine of God is its agnosticism. In the prologue to question three in the first part of the Summa Theologiae, in which he deals with the divine simplicity, Thomas famously comments, quote, since we are not able to know what God is, only what God is not, we are not able to consider in regard to God how he is, but rather how he is not, close quote. Though we say many things about God, we're not entirely sure what we mean when we say them. The Fourth Council of the Lateran taught that in regard to our speech concerning God, in tanta similitudine maior dissimilitudo, that is, in however great a similitude, there's an ever greater dissimilitude. Hans Urs von Balthasar took that as fundamental in Catholic theology, that principle. Thomas picked up on this in making his distinction between the res significata and the modus significandi, the thing signified and the manner of signifying. They're not the same thing. This is why Thomas consistently prefers the negative path when speaking of God, taking away from the concept of God whatever belongs to creatureliness. Though, for instance, we can speak positively enough of God's goodness, we don't really know what we mean when we use that term. To say that God is eternal is tantamount to saying he's not in time. To say he's immutable is tantamount to saying he doesn't change in the creaturely manner. To say he's a spirit is to say he's not marked by matter. But what any of these terms signal positively remains quite mysterious. What precisely does it mean to be outside of time? I mean, no one here below, we're so conditioned by time, can possibly know. What precisely is it like not to be material or not to be changeable? No one whose mind and senses are ordered to the realm of physical things can ever really grasp. The parables of Jesus, I think, interestingly, can be read under this rubric. We say quite correctly that God is just, but in light of the parable, the vineyard owner who pays the same wage to those whom he hired at different times of the day, we find our conventional view of justice confounded. We say quite correctly that God is compassionate, but in the light of the parable of the prodigal son, we realize the inadequacy of even our most generous interpretation of compassion. Now, if we press the question, wondering why the God of the Bible, the God of Christianity, remains so mysterious, so resistant to description and nomination, think of the Bible here, truly, O God of Israel, you are a hidden God. The answer lies in the opening line of the book of Genesis. In the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. Because God brought the whole of the finite universe into existence, God cannot be ingredient within the universe. He must be other in a way that transcends any and all modes of otherness discoverable within creation. Spatial distance, modal diversity, differences in grade, degree, kind, species, variations in speed, temperature, density, none of these can begin to indicate the radicality of the difference that obtains between God and anything that God has made. In Catherine Tanner's language, a fine contemporary theologian, God is not simply other. God is, her language, utterly other. To put it still another way, God's transcendence must be construed in such a manner that it precludes the possibility of contrast in the ordinary acceptance of the term. Nicholas Cusanos caught this when he commented that God, though radically not the world, still must be seen as the non-Aliud, as the non-other. Now, returning to our topic for tonight, this is why Thomas typically refers to God not as en sumum, Latin for highest being, but rather as ipsum esse subsistens. It means the subsisting act of to be itself. God is not the en sumum. There's you and there's me and there's the planet Jupiter and then there's the galaxies and then at the tip top of that, there's God, the highest being. No, says Aquinas. God's not en sumum, but rather ipsum esse subsistence, the subsistent act of to be itself. If God were the highest being, then he could in principle be categorized alongside of other beings. Ipsum esse, however, is not the most powerful and impressive instance of the genus being. In fact, Thomas specifies that God cannot be placed in any genus, even the genus of being. One of the most extraordinary claims, I think, in Thomas's thought. He is, God is, but not in the manner that creatures are, just the contrary. Creatures are analogs of God's essentially mysterious modality of existence. Now, the technical term that Aquinas typically uses to signal this unique quality of the divine manner of being is simplicitas, simplicity. By this he means that in God there's no distinction between essence and existence, a distinction which perforce obtains in anything that God has made. To be a desk is to be a kind of being, namely that which is constrained by the essential properties of deskness. To be human is to be precisely a human being, an existent delimited by the form or essence of humanity. In both cases, the act of being, Thomas calls it the actus ascendi, is, as it were, poured into the receptacle of a particularizing essence. And hence, the things in question are, to that degree, metaphysically complex. This is true of a, of a rock, of an insect, or an archangel, in Thomas's view. Anything creaturely is a combination of essence and existence. It's a type of being, a modality of being. But in God, the source of existence itself, there is no such distinction. God is not this kind of being rather than that. 
He's not in this category rather than that. He's not great rather than small. He cannot be placed, positioned, or indicated. In the strictest sense of the term, he cannot be defined. That's real clear in Thomas. You can't define God. Why? Since definition necessarily implies delimitation. As David Burrell, the great Notre Dame theologian, put it, to be God is to be to be. To be me is to be a human being. To be this is to be a podium-type being. To be this room is to be uh, 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 conditioned by its physicality and so on. To be God, hmm, is to be to be. This reality could certainly not fit into any of the gaps in a conventional scientific account of things. Please never take seriously someone that says, oh, you, you believers are hold to the God of the gaps. No, we do not. Not even in principle could we hold to that. We see now why Aquinas so consistently correlated the divine simplicity to the self-designation of God in Exodus 3.14. Moses was asking a commonsensical question. He was assuming the mode of a scientist. Which God are you? Remember he asked God, what's your name? What kind of being am I dealing with? Commonsensical. We'd all ask that kind of question. God's answer famously, I am who I am, might be interpreted as off-putting, stop asking me such silly questions. But see, Thomas reads it as darkly illuminating. My existence, who I am, is identical to my essence, what I am. To be God is to be to be. Moses is trying to draw God, as the new atheist would, into this realm of experience, to make him one being among many. God's marvelous answer is saying, wrong question. This is precisely why, by the way, God told Moses to take off his shoes, for he was standing on holy ground. He wasn't dealing with something in this world. Now, what becomes abundantly clear, I hope, in this discussion is that the simple God is Pache Ditchkin's never reducible to the level of a creaturely nature. He could never, even in principle, become the object of an empirical or scientific investigation. He could never be defined or categorized by an inquiring mind. He's about as far from a flying spaghetti monster as it's metaphysically possible to be. A passage in Thomas Merton's great seven-story mountain comes to mind in this context. The young Merton read, almost by accident, Etienne Gilson's great book, The Spirit of Medieval Philosophy, in which this subtle philosophical doctrine of the simple God is laid out. Merton was stunned, for he had always considered God, and I'm quoting him now, a noisy mythological being. He never imagined that the Christian understanding of God could be presented in such a sophisticated way it seems to me that young Merton, prior to reading Gilson, had a lot in common with the new atheists. Okay, with that I want to move to a, a consideration of Thomas's view of God the Creator, which is contingent upon everything I've, I've said to this point. It is only the simple God who can, in the proper sense of the term, create. Since creation designates the act of giving rise to finite being ex nihilo, out of nothing, 
That creation is a pivotal idea for Thomas Aquinas is evident throughout his writings. In fact, G.K. Chesterton caught this when he commented that Aquinas should be known as Thomas of the Creator. Getting right the absolutely unique way that the simple God relates to what he's made will go a long way toward clearing up the pseudo-problems raised by the new atheists. Thomas's most thorough and technical treatment of creation occurs in question three of the Questio Disputata, the disputed question called De Potentia Dei, on the power of God, composed sometime in the mid-1260s. In Article 1 of Question 3, Thomas maintains it must be firmly held that God not only can, but does create ex nihilo, from nothing. His justification for the claim rests upon the intensity of God's actuality. Every agent, Thomas says, acts in the measure that it is in act, which is to say, in possession of some perfection of being. Thus, a finite cause, fire, sunlight, a carpenter, produces a finite mode of existence, being secundum quid, determined in this way or that. Another way to state this is to say that a finite cause acts by moving, changing, or further specifying the being of another in some way. But God, who is totally actualized in being, simple, can affect things not only through motion or change, but through bringing forth the totality of their being, through creating them, in the proper sense, <clears throat> ex nihilo. In creating, God does not affect pre-existing reality in some accidental way. Rather, he brings the whole of that reality into being. Thomas Aquinas insists that creation does not take place in time. Why? Well, time itself is a creature. Further, it doesn't occur within the theater provided by space, since space itself is a creature. There's no matter or energy upon which God acts, since both matter and energy are creatures. As such, creation never appears to the senses, nor can it be measured, nor can it be specified temporally. It's better to speak of it as a continual act. Aquinas calls it creatio continua, continual creation. As is true in the case of the divine nature, we know that creation is, but not really what it is. The anomalous, elusive quality of creation is reiterated in the third article of question three, which raises the issue of the locale of creation. That's to say, whether it's something really in the creature or perhaps between the creature and God. Thomas responds that creation as an act is in God, since whatever God does is identical to what God is, given the divine simplicity. But creation in the creature is harder to pin down. For we can't say it's simply received by the creature as an outside influence, since that would presume there's a receptacle that is not itself created. We can only say, and it always puts me in mind of, of like a Zen koan, that God creates that which is receiving the very act of creation. Hence, here's Thomas's definition. Creation is, quote, a kind of relationship to the creature with freshness of being. It's beautiful. God is responsible, in short, for the entirety of a creature's being. Yet his influence is not external to the creature. And this is why he speaks of it as a kind of relation. Thomas was well acquainted with the Aristotelian idea of relationship 
as an accidental qualification of two or more substances. But he knew that creation, which is responsible for the whole of a creature's being, cannot be imagined as between the creature and God. Just, you, know, you, you and I have a relationship. There's substances there, this substance, and we have a relationship. But that can't be true of God and the world. As he does when speaking of the Eucharist, Thomas here uses Aristotelian language, but in a decidedly non-Aristotelian way, signaling that something else, metaphysically speaking, is the case. God is properly discovered as the deepest ground of the creature's own ontological identity. Thomas Merton was entirely in a Thomist frame of mind when he said that contemplative prayer, I'm quoting now, is finding that place in you where you are here and now being created by God. It's marvelous, seems to me, one of the best definitions of prayer. It's again, finding that place in you where you are here and now being created by God. This clarification is of enormous importance as a preliminary response to the atheist contention that the human rapport with God can only be one of abject submission to a tyrant. Do you see how that's precluded by this doctrine of creation? God here and now, moment to moment, giving rise to who we are at the deepest core. It's quedam relatio, it's a kind of relation, cum novitate ascendi, with freshness of being. We're as far from Kim Jong-un as you can get. You see what I'm saying? That the creation relationship is one of of life-giving freshness moment to moment. That's what he's talking about. So the creator is certainly other than the creature, yet his otherness is congruent with his absolute closeness to the creature. Thomas holds that the transcendent God, yes, otherly other, not in a genus, totally other, all of that, is at the same time, I'm quoting, in all things, by essence, presence, and power, and intime, he says, most intimately so. His lordship over creation, and we should indeed use that language, is simultaneously the most gentle letting be of creation. Creatures don't so much have relationships to God, they are relationships to God. It's so important. God up there, out there, I need to cultivate a relationship to, that's wrong-headed from the beginning. Rather, I am in my own most being, every moment, already a relationship to God. I mean, the spiritual life begins to open up. Read Meister Eckhart now, who was a student of Thomas Aquinas. Read that, that rich, mystical, spiritual tradition. It's coming out of this language. Here it is. This is why Meister Eckhart, who sat in Aquinas' chair in theology for a time in Paris, said the best way to find God is to sink into him. It's his typical poetic way of doing things. Now, in recent years, John Milbank and others have drawn out a most important feature of this teaching, namely that creation ex nihilo is essentially a nonviolent act. In most of the mythologies of the ancient world, creation takes place through some primordial act of violence, God or the gods wrestling some enemy or opponent into submission. The philosophical accounts of Plato and Aristotle represent a more sophisticated version of this myth in the measure that they picture a divine figure, 
the demiurgos and Plato, the prime mover in Aristotle, shaping matter into form. See, but there's none of that in the doctrine of creatio ex nihilo. God cannot even in principle wrestle some alien and recalcitrant opponent into submission or shape from the outside in an intervening way, some substance that stands opposed to him. Rather, he brings the whole of finite reality into being non-violently. And the biblical narrative here is quite telling because God doesn't fight the world into being as in almost any other ancient myth. Rather, he speaks the world into being. God said, let there be light, and there was light, etc. Another question that can be explored under the rubric of the divine creativity is this. Why precisely does God create at all? If, as Thomas insists, God in his perfection is utterly self-sufficient, why would God feel obligated to give rise to finite being? One way classically to solve this problem is to dissolve it and say that God creates because he has to. The medieval Arabic philosopher Avicenna, for example, argued that creation is a kind of automatic emanation from God. In saying this, he anticipated by eight centuries or so the dialectical theology of Hegel and by nine centuries the process theology of Whitehead and his disciples. But with this sort of emanationism, Aquinas has no truck. While natural causes that act through necessity are determined toward the production of one kind of effect, think of a plant that gives rise predictably to seed after seed, causes that act through intelligence and will produce a wide variety of effects. Think here of Picasso or James Joyce. God's production, obviously, is wild in its fecundity and diversity, and thus it follows for Thomas that God's mode of creativity is not automatic, but intelligent, purposive, and artistic. Thus, God chooses with artistic intent to give rise to the universe, but he does so in utter freedom from self-interest. And this implies necessarily that God's creative act is a gesture of love, for love is the willing of the good of the other as other. That's a Thomas formula, by the way. Really helpful. Love is not a feeling. Feelings come and go. Love is an act of the will. To will the good of the other as other. Not, I'm willing your good because you'll do something nice to me. That's willing my good through you. But to will the good of the other as other. You see, but God, can, God is the only one that can do that in the utterly perfect way because God has no self-interest. Since God has no ontological need, any and all of his actions ad extra are for the good of the other. Therefore, the world has been spoken into being non-violently and lovingly. In response to certain Hegelianizing tendencies in the theology of the 19th century, the First Vatican Council reiterated this point, stating that God creates not out of any sort of need, but out of a desire to share his goodness. Here again, we see how far this Thomistic sense of God is from the caricature proposed by the new atheists. The creature's relation to the creator God is not crushing and oppressive. Instead, it's the very act by which the creature subsists. More to it, this act is fundamentally non-violent, non-intrusive, non-aggressive, and done out of sheerest love. See, these are the spiritual implications of that sort of high 
um, abstract theology I was articulating, but that's what it looks like on the ground. Okay, just one more little section, then I'll bring it to a close. I want to look at this issue of God's providence, God's providential care for the world, where a lot of these themes now come together. The problem is a vexing one, and much hangs upon the resolution of this issue of providence. As we clearly see in the New Atheist, the modern mind reacts against any claim that God interferes with the movements of nature or the movements of the human intellect and will. The objection is theoretical, for don't the natural sciences and psychology adequately account for these phenomena, but also existential. A competing supernatural cause is an intolerable affront to finite freedom. What I've been exploring more abstractly now becomes focused and concrete. How exactly does the non-competitiveness of God play itself out in terms of specific interior and exterior events? I first observe that Thomas speaks of God as both creator, the one who gives rise to the whole of the universe from nothing, and as a mover, the one who directs particular creatures and creation as a whole to their appointed ends. And he sees no contradiction or tension between the two characterizations. God indeed affects creatures at the deepest possible level of their being and in relatively secondary ways as well. And when God moves or otherwise affects a creature, he's not strictly speaking creating, but he never ceases to be the creator. And this means that the non-competitiveness that obtains in regard to the unique act of creation holds analogously in regard to less dramatic forms of divine influence. Thomas explores this matter in detail in the seventh article of that famous question three of the De Potentia. The topic for discussion is whether God operates in the operation of nature. The dilemma should be clear. If God is the creator of the entire universe in every detail, what room is left for the free exercise of creaturely agency? Wouldn't the presence of the creator simply absorb any purposeful causality outside of himself? The said contra, that's the kind of the, the beginning, opening statement of this article, could function as the leitmotif of my entire discussion this evening. I'm quoting from Isaiah chapter 26. O Lord, it is you who have accomplished all that we have done. Take that as, as the, the entire talk tonight, as a sort of metaphysical reflection on that statement. Lord, you've accomplished all that we have done. Notice, please, the non-competitiveness that's going on here. The, the God who's otherly other, oh Lord, but yet is so intimate to us that we say he's accomplished all that we've done. There it's stated clearly and unapologetically the dimensions of created and uncreated causality placed side by side. We've really done certain things, and yet they've been accomplished in us by God. This sort of juxtaposition is possible only on the assumption that God and creatures are not competing for space on the same metaphysical playing field. The high paradox once more is that the very strangeness and otherness of God is what allows for God's close cooperation with finite agency. In the course of his article, Thomas lays out a number of models for understanding the synergy between divine and non-divine causality. I'll look here at only one. One thing he says can operate in another in the measure that the former provides the latter with its virtus or power, 
as, say, when the sun influences a solar heating device. Now, God certainly acts in this way. Since as creator, he continually provides not only power, but being to all his creatures. He's the condition for the possibility of their being and acting in the first place. But then Thomas adds this, quote, the higher the cause, the more common and efficacious, and the more efficacious, the more profoundly it can penetrate into the effect, close quote. It's typical Aquinas line, densely packed uh, and, and full of power. A finite cause can influence another finite cause, as I'm influencing you in this very minor way tonight by saying some words that I hope are having an impact on your mind. So I'm, I'm one finite agent influencing other finite agents in a very restricted way. But the infinite creator, who is the sheer act of to be itself, can penetrate, so to speak, utterly the effect, acting thoroughly but non-obtrusively in, uh, in the agency of that effect. And with this clarification, we come to the heart of the matter. In our ordinary experience of instrumental causality, the using cause invades the being of that which it uses. But God, precisely as the creative cause of all that exists, can use finite causes instrumentally but non-invasively. Of course, the most interesting instance of this dynamic, at least from our perspective, is the manner in which God works in and through the moves of the human free will. Aquinas is convinced that God moves human wills in such a way as to achieve his purpose, and that this providential direction in no way compromises human freedom. This is the case precisely because God doesn't push or pull human wills from outside as much as he energizes them from the inside. Freedom is not unmitigated spontaneity, but the ordered pursuit of the good in accord with the deepest desire of the free subject. The otherly other God can operate at the level of the ground of the will, luring it in accord with its own most nature, and hence can enable the human subject to be itself precisely through surrender. Much of the spiritual tradition, everybody, from the, the church fathers through John of the Cross to Thomas Merton to the little flower, that's what they're arguing. That's what they're experiencing. Thomas is putting it in more abstract language. To me, it's fascinating how this non-competitive play is consistently displayed in the biblical narratives. God of the Bible indeed acts in human affairs, but not typically in an interruptive way. Rather, he accomplishes his purposes through the play of human freedom. Think, for example, the narratives concerning David are very instructive here. There's very little of the explicitly supernatural in those stories. Reread them in 1 and 2 Samuel. Yet Yahweh, the God of Israel, is clearly presented as achieving what he wants. That achievement takes place in the densely textured political and psychological drama involving Hannah, Eli, Samuel, Saul, Jonathan, and David. The story, on one level, is completely understandable in political and psychological terms, yet the author of the Samuel cycle wants us to penetrate to the deeper level of divine agency. Because the highest cause is not a being among many, it can operate in the realm of beings nonviolently, or as the Book of Wisdom puts it, sweetly. Once more, it's the very otherness and simplicity of God 
that permits God to act in this way. We see again how the atheist concerns about the God of the gaps, who tyrannizes the human project from without, are at least from the perspective of Thomas Aquinas, completely misplaced. Now just a couple paragraphs of conclusion. Through my wrestling with the new atheists in both academic and more popular contexts, I've become, become convinced that the Catholic Church in the years following Vatican II has been rather inept at presenting its own textured and intellectually satisfying understanding of God. As I've tried to demonstrate in this paper, the contemporary atheists are doing battle essentially with caricatures. And therefore, it's altogether right to say to them with Herbert McCabe, yes, you're all absolutely right. But this is not enough. We have to get a lot better at giving a reason for the hope that is in us. We have to get much more adept at articulating our belief in the simple God whose otherness is enhancing to the world rather than competitive with it. We have to formulate a new fundamental apologetics. When I was coming of age in the years just after the council, apologetics had a very bad name. It was defensive, rationalistic, unbiblical, and above all, disrespectful to other religions. Furthermore, my post-conciliar teachers and formators were enthusiastic advocates of a positive engagement with the environing secular culture, even going so far as to suggest, according to the slogan of the time, that the world sets the agenda for the church. But see, all this was exaggerated and one-sided. Every culture, very much including our own, is evangelically ambiguous. That is to say, to some degree, amenable to the proclamation of the gospel, and to some degree, quite inhospitable to it. Simply to pursue a culture and seek accommodation to it, therefore, is never a healthy evangelical strategy. My own conviction is that during these years when the church was running after the secular culture, that culture was not the least bit eager to reciprocate. Instead, it went about its business more or less indifferent to the church, which was ardently pitching woo in its direction. But then in the wake of September 11th, a significant portion of the secular world, led by the new atheists, turned rather aggressively against religion in general, and Christianity in particular. And when they did so, we found ourselves ill-equipped to defend ourselves, long, having long before jettisoned our evangelical and apologetic tools. See, to my mind, everybody, uh, it's ironic, perhaps, but this pre-modern doctrine of St. Thomas Aquinas, rich, powerful, deep, articulate, perhaps provides the surest foundation for an evangelical apologetics in our postmodern world. Thanks, everybody. God bless you. Thanks for listening. Good, thanks. I think we have uh, time for Q&A. Right, they'll, they'll come through the computer here. Okay. Can you discuss the incarnation of Christ in relation to the idea that God cannot be reduced to the level of a Yeah, that's a great question about the incarnation. Um, the Council of Chalcedon says that in, in the incarnation, two natures, divine and human, come together hypostatically in one divine person. Now think about that for a second. They come together, Chalcedon says, without mixing, mingling, or confusion. That means that God and the world are different. So the divinity of Jesus is other than his humanity. That's true. God doesn't turn into a human being in the incarnation. 
A human being doesn't turn into God. We don't mean that. But yet they come together in the unity of the divine person. How is that possible? Only because God is so radically other. See, I, I, I can't become you without destroying you or overwhelming you, right? If someone comes to dominate you psychologically, that's an, an invasive move. This podium could become ash, but I'd have to destroy it, right? That's the way it is with, with finite things. They're competitive to each other. They can't occupy the same space. But the Christian claim, which is right on this point, that God becomes human, doesn't mean he turns into a human. That would mean the natures, have, have, they're no longer um, uh, separate. But they come together in the unity of the divine person because God is not a being. He's not one of the things within the realm of finite reality. His otherness allows that kind of radical closeness to happen. Does that make sense? See, I would argue, in fact, that what you're dealing with here in this high metaphysical account of Aquinas is an implication of the incarnation. The incarnation consciousness came first. And then the great tradition tried to figure out, how is that possible? How could God become a human without ceasing to be God or overwhelming the human he becomes. Only because God exists in this absolutely strange way. So that's, that question is right to the point, really, of the talk. So the question about God is, if God is being and not being, what does it mean to have a personal relationship with God? For having a personal relationship um, well, think about it for a second. Can I have a personal relationship to God? Yes, yes. In fact, deeper and more intimate than any personal relationship with a, with a creature. To think of the most intimate kind of personal relationship of, of, of two of lovers, a husband and a wife, intimate friends, right? But my relation to God is, is infinitely closer than that. Why? Because... God is the ground of my own being. God, God is, is here and now bringing me into existence. It's not like I have to cultivate a relationship with a being outside of me, but rather here and now I'm being created by God. That means I have the most intimate kind of personal relationship with God. What I can't do is control God, you know, and see, we sinners, we're always going to play that game with each other. To some degree, we're going to try to control each other, right? I'll try to manipulate, dominate. Well, I can't do that with God. There's the otherness of God. God is uncontrollable. But, but I can be closer to God. You know the great line of St. Augustine? Augustine said that God is superior sumo meo. That means he's higher than anything I can imagine at intimior intimo meo, and closer to me than I am to myself. Now that's getting it right. That's getting it right. If I just say God is superior sumo meo, he's, he's, he's the highest thing I can imagine, well, that can be any form of, of deism or, or you know, a mythology. If I just say intimior intimo meo, he's just you know, deep down inside of me, well, that could be a form of pantheism. But to say both at the same time. And you see how, how ipsum esse, 
See, think of this way. Where is ipsum esse, the sheer active to be itself? Well, it's nowhere in this room, because everywhere I look in this room, I got beings. You're a being, I'm a being, that's a being, this is a room full of beings. Where's God? He's not in this room. Right, God is transcendent to this room. But where's ipsum esse in this room? Everywhere. <laughs> because we wouldn't exist unless God were here and now breathing us into being. Those some old enough remember the Baltimore Catechism. Where is God? Everywhere. That's Thomas Aquinas. Now, superior sumo meo, you bet. He's, he's nice. not any of the beings in this room. He can't be. God's not in this room. And, and of course God's in this room. <laughs> you know? God is everywhere. But see, in that unique manner, not the way that, so there's a lot of us in this room, a lot of beings. And let's say a really big being came in this room, this really dominant being came in this room. Well, that isn't what it's like with God. It's like, you know, how about this? I think a good analogy. Um, where is J.K. Rowling in the Harry Potter stories? Well, she's not a character. She's nowhere in the story. I, I read the whole, how many volumes are there? I don't even know, seven or where is she? I, I read about all Harry and his friends and, and Hogwarts and all these things going on. I never once see her. Where's J.K. Rowling in the uh, Harry Potter stories? Everywhere. She's on every page in every detail. So that's not a bad uh, analogy with God. Not a thing or an item in the world, but yet omnipresent to the world. Does that make sense? I'm sorry, are we, are we allowing a, a, a hand-raised question? Go ahead. I've heard Aquinas' teaching on this described with the phrase, analogy of being. Yeah. What does that mean? And then I've also heard that the Swiss Reformed theologian, Karl Barth, <laughs> Karl Barth yeah. said that analogy of being is the invention of the Antichrist, the and it's the reason I will never become a Catholic. Yeah, you're, you're right on the fault line of 20th century theology. He said it was the principal work of the Antichrist. Um, what is the analogia entis, is the Latin, the analogy of being? It's, I did refer to it in the paper. It means that the prime reference for the word to be is God. That God is what it means to be. And what we are, we say, well, I exist, you exist, the world exists. I'm using the, world, the word exist in an analogical way. It's something like the way that God exists. Not exactly the same, not radically different. So there'd be like a univocal sense or an equivocal sense. Analogies in between those two. So the world is like the being of God, right? So it's, it's the Catholic way of talking about the rapport between God and the world. And remember, I quoted Fourth Lateran, in tanta similitudine maior dissimilitudo. In whatever similitude, so yeah, we're all like God. Because we, we exist, we reflect the being of God. But in tanta similitudine, mire dissimilitudo, there's a greater dissimilitude. Because God's manner of being, which is the real meaning of the term, is radically other. That, that's the analogy of being. Now what bothered Karl Barth was he felt that that was drawing God and the world together too much. And he believed in the sort of perpendicular relationship. There's the world nothing, and then God has to come kind of crashing into the world in this sort of paradoxical way. And Catholic theology has always been at odds with that. It, it sees it as too dialectical. Um, and that, that's why there's a, there's a ground in us for 
natural theology, that there's, there's, a, there's an analogy between the world and God, so I can name God from the world to some degree. Bart was uneasy with all of that, um, and that's why he was at odds with uh, Catholic theology. But read, uh, I mentioned Hans Urs von Balthasar, who was a good friend of Karl Barth, of course a Catholic theologian, and the two of them debated their lifelong on the analogy of being. But it's right on what we're talking about tonight. This next question is asked, why do you separate the bishop on modernity from Descartes on dismiss St. Thomas's existence equals essence divine claim? Why modernity rejected the simplicity of God? There's actually, it's a good, um, I wrote a book called The Priority of Christ where I go into that question in, in some detail. You see, after Aquinas, after the high Middle Ages, and you get into people like William of Ockham, and you get into the early modern thinkers, the analogical conception of being faded away. And we got into a much more um, contrastive understanding of the relation between God and the world. Uh, think of, of nominalism and, and the view of God that influenced the Protestant reformers in many ways. Is God over and against the world, God other than the world? To give all the glory to God means I can't give glory to the world, right? If, if God gets all the glory, then, then my own will can't get any glory. Read the reformers now under that rubric. Um, it was the breakdown of the analogical conception of being that led, I think, to this very contrastive, competitive view of God, which then led, I would argue, by steady steps toward atheism. Because that God is indeed the one the new atheists are worried about. And, and old atheists too, like Feuerbach and Marx and company. A God that, that broods over the world, that, that hovers threateningly over my freedom. I do think that came from a breakdown in the analogical conception of being. And God was conceived and construed as a competitor. And so then you get uh, the, the atheist rejection. I'd reject that God too, you know? So that's why the recovery of this, I think, much richer understanding of God is, um, is you know, desirable. Yeah. 